0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church.
1: Pastor Stephen will be preaching today from Revelation 21, verses 22 to 27. Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city. nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life.
0: Well, good morning. It's good to be together as we look at God's Word. Thank you to the choir and orchestra for serving us so well this morning. It's good to see everyone here gathered. This morning we come to the fourth of five sermons on the theme of light in our Advent series. We saw light earlier several weeks ago in sort of the biblical storyline intertwined with the temple. And then we saw light from Psalm 27, how God is our light, our guidance in the midst of the dark. And then we saw how Jesus himself, when he came, said, I am the light of the world, likening himself to light itself. And now we come to the conclusion of that story in Revelation 21. Would you join me as we pray and ask God for help. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would shine the light of the glory of Christ so that we would see it afresh, that we would no longer be those who dwell in deep darkness, even if the shadows deepen in our own lives this morning. Cause the light of the glory of Jesus to shine brightly as we behold you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you all know, Revelation 21 and 22 are the last two chapters in the entire Bible. They describe heaven. They describe the new creation and the new earth. They describe a future where God will dwell with his people perfectly forever. It's the conclusion to the entire redemptive story of the Bible. And yet, it's also just the beginning. C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia says this in the very last line. He says, everything that came before in his I think seven books of the Chronicles, says was just the cover and title page. And now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And that's precisely what we come to this morning in Revelation 21. It's telling us the world that we will dwell in that will just begin and will go on forever, in which the next chapter is better than the one before. So with that in mind, one would think that Revelation 21 and 22 would be some of our most favorite chapters for those who are following Jesus. We'd come to these chapters again and again. We'd have these chapters memorized. We'd have them cross-stitched into pillows and posted on our walls, wouldn't we? And yet, I don't think that's the case. We don't normally, naturally gravitate towards these chapters very often. And it just made me wonder, why is that? Why is it that we don't gravitate towards these chapters? final two chapters of the Bible. I would venture it's because so much of our lives are consumed with heartache, sin, suffering, and death. We can't imagine a world with those, without those things. Because so much of our lives are consumed with that. The brokenness of our world is always and ever before us. Sin and brokenness are like the threads that run through the entire fabric of our existence and of creation. For some of us this morning, this is the first or maybe the fifth or the 15th Christmas that you'll spend without a dear loved one. And you feel the ache in your soul still. Family gatherings highlight all of the family tension that exists, all of the relational dysfunction at work in our families. Others are dreading Christmas because you'll spend it alone, and loneliness and sadness weigh heavy. I think. We, we, we don't gravitate towards these happily ever after endings at times because they feel too optimistic and too unrealistic. We can't imagine a world without suffering or death because we're dealing with it all the time. Sometimes we like to escape into it. You know, we watch a Hallmark movie where we know the guy and the girl, it's always going to be happily ever after. And yet, very often in our own lives, we struggle to reflect upon a world where it will indeed be happily ever after. We are all only getting older and older and older, and then we die. That's true of all of us. I realize this is a very encouraging, (laughs) inspiring Christmas message so far. This is precisely why God gave us Revelation 21 and 22. The Apostle John gives us a glimpse into the new heaven and the new earth, and he wrote it down for us so that we would take hope and encouragement in this life where sin and brokenness are so pervasive. And it describes God's shining, glorious presence among his people. And so what it tells us this morning is that the new heaven, the new earth, the new creation is not too good to be true. But instead, it's a reality that awaits each one of us. This passage aims to give us hope and encouragement. And its main point is this. We will bask in the light and glory of God and dwell with Jesus forever and ever. And for some of us this morning, you can't wait. And for others of us, you think, is that it? Is is there more? And I hope as we walk through this passage, we'll see just the significance and the wonder and the startling truths here in this text. And for some of us this morning, whose hearts are overwhelmed, we, we feel like we're dwelling in the midst of deep darkness right now. You're headed to Mayo or you're coming back from Mayo. You're making plans for the funeral that's upcoming or those plans have just passed. Take heart. Don't lose hope. Let me just situate us. Several weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 1-3, let there be light and there was light. And throughout the Bible, we saw that God's presence dwelt in the midst of his people in the tabernacle and in the temple. And then Jesus came and he said in no uncertain terms, I am the light of the world. Who do, whoever doesn't believe in me will not have the light of life. And now the church is filled with the Holy Spirit and is to shine the light of the glory of Christ in the midst of darkness. And now we fast forward to the end of the story to see a vision of what heaven will be like. And I often use heaven and new creation and new earth kind of interchangeably, but we're talking about this new creation, new earth that we will be dwelling in that we often think of as heaven. And the first thing we see is, in this first part, in verses 22 and 23, is that God dwells with his people. Look with me at verse 22. He says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So what preceded Revelation 21 is John's description in Revelation 20 of the final judgment, the final judgment and war against the ancient serpent Satan. And God once and for all decisively defeats Satan, casts him into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever. And it's following this final judgment, He establishes his new heaven and new earth. So look with me at Revelation 21, verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So John comes into the new Jerusalem, this new holy city that we heard from Andy, that was a perfect square coming down from heaven. And it says, this new Jerusalem, he sees no temple in the city. And this would have been startling, shocking even. The temple in Jerusalem, was its most prominent and distinctive feature? everyone could see it because it sat on a mountain. It overlooked all the valleys around it, It overlooked the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley, and the Israelites journeying to the city, making their yearly pilgrimages, would, would see the city in the distance because it sat up on a hill, sat up on a mountain. That's why when they sang the Psalms of Ascents, they're called Psalms of Ascents. They're going up to God's city. For an Israelite, everything revolved around the temple, and yet Here's this shocking development that John calls out. There is no temple in this city. This would be like going to Paris. And you get there and there's no Eiffel Tower. This is like taking a field trip to Washington, D.C. You get to the Washington Monument and it's just a flat piece of ground. There's no Lincoln Memorial. There's no White House. You go to the Black Hills. There's no Mount Rushmore. You go to Australia. There's no Great Barrier Reef. And you're thinking, wait, wait, what's, what's going on? Why is there no temple in this new heavenly Jerusalem, this new city? Well, John tells us, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The stunning truth is that God and Christ are the temple. We will have unfiltered, unmediated access to God. We will be in his presence forever. To see the significance of this, we have to rewind to several weeks ago. God's presence, what we said already, dwelt in the tabernacle, dwelt in the temple. High priests would enter once a year into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice. And yet when Jesus was crucified, the curtain was torn in two. And Jesus himself says, I am the temple. We come to the throne of grace through Jesus And so we don't go backwards, but we go forward. We don't resurrect a temple, but we go all the way forward where we're in God's presence perfectly. In fact, we actually do go backwards a little bit because we go all the way back to Eden, pre-fall. We are walking and talking with God himself. In the new creation, God will dwell perfectly with his people. There's no need for mediator, priest or sacrifice look with me at revelation 21 verse 3 it makes this explicit he says behold the dwelling place of god is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them as their god and so this new creation this new earth that we will take hold of is where god's people will dwell in his presence for for perpetuity forever. God's presence will not be confined to a temple, but his shining glory will fill the entire earth. Now look with me at verse 24. It says, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. So what is this saying here? It means, it says, that the glory of God and of Jesus will illuminate the world like the sun illuminates the world now. And let me just define what the glory of God is. God's glory is the visible display of the radiance of God's holiness and worth and perfection. So it's the visible display of his radiance, of his holiness and worth and perfection. And so God's glory will shine forth so that there is no need for sun or moon. And this is in fulfillment of what Isaiah, the prophet, prophesied in Isaiah 60. And we'll come back to Isaiah 60 again and again, because he prophesies about all of these things that we see. Isaiah 60, verse 19, he's prophesying of a future day. And he says this, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. So thousands of years earlier, Isaiah prophesied of the coming day where there would be no more need for sun or moon because God would be the light among his people. And he says this in that verse. There will be no more mourning. Your days of mourning shall be ended. And this again confirms Revelation 21, 4, where it says, in this new creation, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So what is he saying here? He's saying we will be in God's shining, glorious presence so that we don't need the sun, we don't need the moon, and in this day there will never be any more grief, any more heartache, any more brokenness, any more sin, no more effects of sin, and we will be with God perfectly forever. Revelation 21 is written so that it might awaken our hearts with hope for a future day. I think this is figurative language that he's using. So whether or not there'll be a physical sun or moon is inconsequential. His point is that God's glory is incomparably greater, brighter, and more brilliant and more glorious than any other source of light. So let me just try this on. It's like this light. You can see that. Imagine that was the sun, the brightness of the sun. And if I brought this out into, you know, our beautiful summertime July day and shined it right up at the sun, it, it, wouldn't, make a, it wouldn't make a single difference. That's what the sun will be like. That's how small its light will seem in the light of the glory of God and Christ. So what will the new heavens and new earth be like? It's going to be good. That's one of the things we need to see this morning. I think many of us do not long for heaven. Do not long to be with God because we think it's going to be boring. I'm going to be strumming my harp, floating around like a fat angel. And that's just furthest from the truth. It's going to be good. We will dwell in God's glorious presence forever. And we'll see more of that in this next section. The first part, God dwells among his people. and the second part, we see that God rules over the nations. Look with me at verses 24 to 27. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What John does here is he gives us three pictures of what this new creation will be like, this new world in which we dwell. The first is there's a vibrant life. The second is perfect peace, and the third is eternal grace. Vibrant life, perfect peace, and eternal grace. Look with me at the first one, a vibrant life in verses 24 to 26. 24 and 26. This, he says, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, into the city. And then in verse 26, it says, they will bring into it, the city, the glory and honor of the nations. So what's going on here? There's this picture of all the nations gathered around this city, but not laying siege to it, but instead they go in and out of it in order to pay homage to King Jesus. Jesus is ruling and reigning from on high and the nations come because Genesis 12 has now been fulfilled in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And God has done it. We read it in, well, we didn't read it this morning, but you can read it in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, that God will gather some from every tribe and language and tongue and nation, and they will gather around the throne and declare, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. And now, They come in and out of the city and they bring their glory into it. Now, what does this mean when they bring their glory into it? When they bring the glory and honor of the nations into it? I think it could have two possibilities and I think it's both. The first is that these peoples bring praise and worship and thanksgiving into the city. There will be no more pride, no more idolatry, but only worship of the lamb who has redeemed all the nations by his blood. And so they will come and they will pay homage, pay tribute to Lord Jesus, not out of reluctance, but eagerly and willingly and say, oh, we wouldn't be here if it were not for the blood of Jesus shed for us. But the second thing I think it's pointing to when it says bring their glory and honor of the nations into it is that the nations are bringing the products and the products of vibrant human commerce and production. They're working and making things and being creative and being productive and tending the earth and exercising dominion over the creatures of the earth. And so they're going to bring these things into God's heavenly city. Remember, the command to work came pre-fall. It came in Genesis 2.15. To have dominion and to work and manage. And so in this new earth, it's not going to be boring. Because this is why we often think it's just going to be one extended long church service. And for some of you, that, that doesn't sound all that exciting. Because you're like, I- I'd like to go hunting and-, and doing stuff and building things with my hands and some woodworking and-, and maybe some construction work and some remodeling of my home. Things that at the end of the day, I'm sore, but I feel like I, I made a difference with, with my work. And that's precisely what we see here. It's going to be meaningful, productive work with no procrastination, no burnout, no idolatry, no pride. But we'll employ our God-given skills and gifts to contribute to this new world and to magnify Christ. We will finally be able to do 1 Corinthians 10.31. We will eat and we will drink and we will do all things for the glory of God. So the nations will move in and out of this city in direct access with God, intimacy with God, engaged in meaningful work that is full of deep satisfaction. The second thing we see is perfect peace. Look with me at verse 25. It says, and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Now, look back with me at Revelation 21 verses 12 and 13 where it talks about the gates the gates of the city. It had a great high wall. This is Revelation twenty-one, verse twelve, with twelve gates, and at the twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. So what we get in this city, that is a perfect square, is three gates on each and every side. And at each of the gates, there's an angel stationed there. But what he's just said here in Revelation 21 is that the gates will never be shut. So what does that mean? What what is that saying? It means that we will experience perfect safety and peace. This city has no threats, no enemies, no rivals, no rebellion, and no attacks to worry about. The peoples of the earth will move in and out freely in order to come to King Jesus. And again, this is reflected in Isaiah 60, 11. Your gates shall be open continually day and night. They shall not be shut that peoples may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. So we see that again, that the nations are gonna move in and out of the city and they're gonna bring the wealth of nations, their productive work, their vibrant commerce into the city. And there will be perfect peace. And there's an echo here, isn't there? In Genesis 3.24, an angel, a cherubim, is stationed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden in order to make sure no one gets in and eats of the tree of life. And now there's an angel stationed at each of these gates of the city, but the gates never close, which means people can go in and out which means they're stationed there, to make sure the gates stay open. It means God is zealous and jealous for God's people to be able to come in and worship and have unfiltered, unmediated access to the throne of grace. Our gracious God is ensuring that his gates stay open so that all the redeemed can come and behold the glory of God. Now, verse 25 says, and there will be no night there. Again, I think this is figurative language to say that there will be no more of what darkness signifies. Because I think we'll still want to appreciate the glory of the stars. But there will be no more of what darkness signifies, which is what? No more fear, no more death, no more destruction, no more evil, no more hopelessness, no more despair, no more depression, no more spiritual blindness, no evil, no death, no sadness, no more wickedness. In this city, there will be no human trafficking, no prostitution, no abortion, no murder, no exploitation, no wars, no genocide, no violence, no shedding of blood, no COVID, no cancer, no cataract surgery. All of creation right now is groaning under the weight of sin and brokenness. And we feel that deep in our own hearts as well. The weight of the world just crushes at times. And yet there is a day coming where God will be in our midst perfectly. Our world is not as good as it gets, and heaven is not too good to be true. God is ushering in a world of perfect peace where fear and hopelessness and despair are banished forever. And for some of you this morning, where the shadows deepen, your heart is weighed down, Things just feel insurmountable, overwhelming. If you just pondered it long enough, you'd have a panic attack. And and perhaps you're trying to drown that out with painkillers or alcohol or whatever else. And the scriptures tell us there is a world coming where we will look Jesus face to face. And we will dwell in his presence forever. And that will be all satisfying. That is what we need this morning. The third thing we see is eternal grace. Verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What this verse does is it reiterates the judgment that took place at the end of Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, it says all the dead were judged. And there were other books other than the book of life that were opened up and it recorded everyone's thoughts and deeds and actions. And everyone was judged according to those books. And yet in this city, nothing unclean, nothing stained with sin will ever enter into it. It's a holy city. It's a perfect society. And it's this verse that begins to make some of us a little bit uncomfortable. If nothing unclean ever enters into the city, will we get in? Not on my own merit. It's kind of like the idea if you want to find the perfect church, once you find it, don't join because once you do, you'll spoil it. We know all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which one of us hasn't at one time done something false, lied or cheated? told the half-truth, or deceived someone. And yet this is where the beauty and the wonder of the incarnation comes in. The gospel of Jesus shines forth against this darkened backdrop of judgment. Our sins rightly condemn us to destruction. Revelation 20, 11 to 15 says that the dead were judged according to what they had done. Every thought, word, and deed has been recorded and stands as just condemnation against each and every single one of us. None of us is deserving of grace, and all of us are deserving of punishment. And this is precisely why Jesus came into the world, because we could not save ourselves. Isaiah says, a world was dwelling in deep darkness, and yet on them has light shone. Jesus broke into the world as light and life, and this is why Christmas is a big stinking deal. Jesus came to usher in the good news of great joy that will be for all the people who will believe in him. That there's a rescue, that there's a hope. That in the midst of all the brokenness, all the scars, all the sin, all the violence that rises up from within in our hearts, Jesus has come to bring healing and hope and restoration and forgiveness of sins for those who trust in him. And all those who are treasuring Christ right now in your hearts, guess what? Your name is written in this book of life. And for all those who are not, it could be. You can, even today, trust in him so that your name would likewise be written in this book of life. To be in Jesus' presence is better than we could possibly fathom, and to be apart from him is more horrific than we could imagine. And so, In a group this size, we know, I know, that there are some who are not trusting in Jesus. Don't walk out this morning without first getting right with God, who extends to you grace that flows from the blood of Jesus, who died to obtain forgiveness of sins and to satisfy God's wrath that we all rightly deserved. The Apostle John records these things, not just to observe them, but to exhort us to cleave and to hold on to and to believe and to trust in Jesus. So, how might we apply this passage this morning? There are several ways that I want to draw out that are mainly about marveling rather than doing. I want our hearts to be enlivened with these truths this morning, that we would behold afresh the wonder in the glory of Jesus and the gospel of Christ. The first thing is that the new heaven and new earth is going to be amazing. I think we need to get our hearts right. It is going to be amazing. It will be the furthest thing from boring. I was pondering this, and I was pondering the God of the universe made everything in everyone that is in it. And it made me think about the platypus. How could the creator of the world who made the platypus possibly make anything boring? <laughs> Here we have this animal with a duck's beak, a beaver's body that is otter, otter-footed, lays eggs, and it has a venomous spur on its hind foot. I did not know this last tidbit of information the maker and sustainer of the platypus and everything else in this world is utterly incapable of making something that is going to bore us for all eternity. He is glorious. Look at the world that we enjoy. And he's going to make an even better one. We've had a lot of snow recently and it just... I still can't wrap my mind around it. Every snowflake is different. No two are the same. I don't know how many millions and billions and trillions of snowflakes there are, and yet the very fact that no two are alike again reminds us of the stunning, infinite nature of the creativity of our God. The new creation will be amazing and vibrant with life and activity, full of productive labor and meaningful work and perfect peace. The excitement of seeing the Vikings come back from 33 down. And I know some of you are hoarse from cheering that display. Heaven is going to be so much better. That will pale in comparison. That will be like a root canal in comparison to what you will experience in heaven. No offense to all the dentists. The second thing I want to draw out, the new heaven and the new earth will be full of activity. You will not be floating in the clouds, strumming your harp with a dull look on your face. Heaven is going to be full of meaningful activity, building, creation, creation, You will be given assignments from God. There will be feasting and celebration and rest. And yet it will all feel strange because it will be absent of everything that we're so used to illness, anxiety, infighting, arrogance, and selfishness. You will plant a garden, but no pests will come eat of it. There will be no pesticides, there will be no thorns, and there will be no weeds. There will be no famine, or drought, or thorns, or thistles. Third, the new heaven and the new earth is where we will be with God. And that's the greatest thing. The first two were fine, but we will be in the shining, glorious presence of God forever. And sometimes my heart is so dulled, I can't even fathom how good and glorious that will be. We're sometimes so cynical, we can't even imagine what it will be like to have unhindered joy and delight and praise that will marvel and worship with childlike wonder. We'll wonder how we lived anywhere else the nostalgia that we feel in this life, sometimes with longings and expectations that just go unmet and we're like, oh, there's just this feeling that, I, I, th- that there's more. All those will be satisfied in heaven when we finally gaze upon the face of our Savior. We are to, made to bask in the light of the presence of God himself. Christmas can very often feel anticlimactic for people, right? You, you see all the commercials, you see all the tinsel, you see all the lights, and you're thinking, everyone's so happy. Why don't I feel so happy? Why am I dreading driving and seeing my relatives? And why, why isn't it as kind of joyful as I want it to be? And it's because we're made for something else. We're made for heaven. It's a pointer that this is not our eternal home. It's pointing us to where we will dwell forever and ever and ever. We will gaze upon the face of our Savior. This is just a stopover until we reach our final destination. Perhaps we don't think more about heaven because we've gotten so used to earth. We don't think about the new creation, the new earth that we'll dwell in. Because we're trying to hold on to this old earth for far too long. And yet our deep longings for joy, for hope, for peace, for justice. Reveal that we were made for God. We were made to dwell with him forever. And so Christmas this morning. Reminds us. That God. Has come to dwell with us. Every time. Oh, one of the things I want to do, you know, we're doing this series on light for Advent. What I want to happen for us is every time you flip on a switch, every time you go and look at the Christmas lights, every time you hang them on your house, every time you see light, think I was made to dwell in the very presence of God himself. The glory of God is the light and he's going to shine forth and we will bask in that light perfectly and forever. And that's where I want our hearts to be. As we long for that, we will follow him in the present and trust him and take hope. And so Jesus has come as the light of the world. May we behold him in all of his splendor and glory. Let's pray. Father, do what only you can do by filling our hearts with the joy and the light of the glory of Christ. Cause us to behold you and to long for you and to love you more. And for those who are walking in darkness, perhaps a temporary dark night of the soul, or perhaps they have never beheld the light of Jesus, we pray that you would shine forth and that they would receive and believe even this day. Cause us to walk in your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading the passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples,